PPE is super important, but it provides one aspect of risk mitigation. And this has to be taken in the context of optimising ventilation, making sure there's enough staffing on board. If we're looking towards the winter and we're going to have to manage COVID, we're going to have flu, there's likely to be other respiratory viruses in paediatrics, there'll be RSV, these other types of viruses which cause nasty infections in children. We're recognising that we're making sure that people are wearing the right masks, particularly that all the kind of right equipment is available. Hello and thank you for checking out this episode of the From the Frontline podcast. Each episode we'll be interviewing a key voice from the NHS or social care to discuss some of the key challenges and changes that impact the treatment and care we all receive. Throughout this podcast series we'll be answering some of the big questions which face health and social care today, such as why are there massive delays in A&E, how do we beat the NHS winter crisis, and how can we make the future of digital health accessible for all? We hope that you'll finish each episode knowing a little bit more about the major NHS headlines and what needs to change if you are to deliver the best possible care for everyone in the UK. From the Frontline podcast is brought to you by Healthcoms Consulting, who are part of the PLMR group. We hope you enjoy this episode. On today's episode, we are going to be talking all things infection prevention and control. In particular, looking at the impact of COVID on IPC practice, but also what the future of infection prevention and control might look like. We're delighted to have Dr. James Price from the Healthcare Infection Society with us today. James, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Before we get into the discussion, it would be great just to get a sense of your background in this area, really. No worries. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for inviting me here today. So uh, as you say, my name is James Price. I'm an infectious diseases and microbiology physician. Uh, and I have a particular interest in infection prevention and control. I've had about 17 years worth of experience, I suppose, and that's both clinically and academically. Uh, I've been doing some uh, research, looking a bit about how germs move around hospital and how we can optimise that. So I suppose most recently, I've been working as the Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Imperial, and I've now moved down to Brighton, to the University of Sussex, where I'm doing a more academic role uh, trying to look at new technologies to to sort out germs and how to prevent infections. And as you say, I'm a a trustee and a council member at the Healthcare Healthcare Infection Society, which is a national charity on uh, supporting infection prevention and control. Amazing. Well, we're really grateful for your time. And I suppose from where I'm sitting, and I suppose from the perspective of lots of our listeners, we'll have some kind of understanding of the impact that COVID-19 had on the way we do infection prevention and control in our NHS hospitals. I'm thinking particularly about wearing face coverings, increased efforts around sanitization, ventilation, these kind of buzzwords that we've heard in the media and all of our conversations over the last three years. I suppose from where you're sitting uh, and from your experience, what would be some of the key lessons that you would highlight from the last three years with COVID-19? Yeah, thanks. I've been reflecting a lot on, on that. And I think part of it is one of the key things. I think, as you say, there's buzzwords. People are engaged in IPC at the moment. Being candid, I suppose, traditionally, it's always been a kind of left in the back because there's other things going on. And now people care about it. They're talking about it. I've been having conversations with people. I would never speak about ventilation or about masks. So it's great that people have a an opinion. And I think that's something to engage on. In terms of lessons learned, um, 
I suppose the key thing is people now see PPE, personal protective equipment, is useful. It stops people picking up infections and it prevents it spreading. And so I think that's got to be a key part around the engagement. And it starts, you know, having these conversations about things. There are polarizing views. I get that on certain aspects. I wasn't going to go into detail on that. Um, But I think part of this is that it shows that there is research, responsive research happening. I suppose we've learned a lot that anxiety drives misuse of PPE. And that's not meant to, I'm not coming at that from a meant to be a derogatory response to my colleagues. This was an anxious time. People want to be safe and want to protect their patients. Um, but I think there was maybe an underappreciation of the risks associated with excess PPE. And so I think there's um, lessons learned on the unintended consequences. Perhaps I can talk about a bit about that later. Um, I think another lesson is we're learning how germs move around in hospitals in a much more detailed way than we were before. And again, this responsive research to what's going on. We'll all have heard the the, uh, discussion, shall we say, about droplet versus aerosol. And I think that's fed across both healthcare and into the media as well. But I think that what that shows is we're we're learning more about this and maybe what we traditionally thought of as the ways germs move around may not be or they may have slightly different views and we need to challenge what we previously thought about in order to learn more and how we can adapt and I think we're getting better at saying we're learning and responding to the research to the evidence Um, and so there's been a lot of adaption to that which is good and healthy debate which is always useful. One, I think one key area that we're that has really come to the forefront in the lessons is around environmental risk. The, the importance of environmental safety, particularly ventilation in our healthcare settings and the water safety. I think we all know that our healthcare uh, environment can be quite um have an older state, I think is probably the the the, the most politically correct way of uh, saying that. And we need to, and we're starting to understand or starting to recognise more the importance, particularly of ventilation, when we're seeing respiratory viruses coming coming along. Uh, and so we're seeing absolutely the um, assessments continue to go on, but it's not easy just to be able to update ventilation. They are expensive. The estate is old, and we need to think about how, certainly, how we can manage with what we're doing, but also when we're building new hospitals and designing new areas, how we can optimise that for the benefit of all, particularly when we're planning forward with other respiratory viruses, the flus, the RSVs that are coming in. And I think we've learned more about, um, or we're learning more about adapting to when we have to close a ward, we suddenly stop using water. And there's challenges with that about bugs that grow in water. And so we've had our estates teams flat out trying to sort those out. So it's all these kind of reactive things that we do day to day. But when you have a pandemic that crops up and you have to flip wards between different things, these kind of operational challenges um, can be pretty tough and we need to keep a grip on all of all of those. Um, the I suppose the other aspect is on vaccination. Sometimes people don't necessarily think of vaccination as being part of infection prevention and control, but it absolutely is. And and I think one of the lessons we found is vaccinations remain a really incredible way of preventing infections. But not, not only that, we've seen we, we've got some very robust ways of our traditional vaccine preventable infections. But we've seen how as a nation, as a 
international community, we can come together and develop vaccines in a rapid way and mass rollout. And we've seen the benefits of that, um, not only in, in preventing infections, but also reducing the severity of disease um, as well. And we've, we've certainly, there's lots of data out there that shows some fantastic trends um, when we've seen that. Some of the work that I've been doing is on vaccine hesitancy and talking with particularly staff, healthcare staff members about their concerns and their factors behind that. And I think there's a lot of learning that we can do a, a, do around that um, because my perceptions of what made people hesitant are absolutely were not the the reasons why people were and there is miss it there are misinformation going around and how we we combat that in a meaningful way because if our healthcare workers are finding it challenging then i imagine our wider community find that particularly challenging as as well and i suppose that feeds into a, another lesson that i've thought about particularly is around communication I've been fortunate to work with some fantastic colleagues, particularly in the healthcare, who've been, as comms teams, have been incredibly responsive and supportive to this. When we've seen part of this, as we've seen national guidance that has been incredibly valuable, um, and there's been a high turnover of guidance, absolutely responding to new information, new, new clinical scenarios. We've seen challenges when these new guidance come out on a Friday afternoon and how we safely operationalize that to our staff and how we successfully communicate that. And I think we've learned lessons that sometimes doing it on a Friday afternoon is not the right time to do that. Uh, and we need to balance that uh, operational challenge versus getting it right from a safe way for our staff being able to implement that. Because it's very easy to sit in the ivory tower of infection prevention and control saying, okay, well, we're going to change testing. But there's a series of events that happen. And so I think that communication, both within a trust to your local communities as well, to the ICS, the Integrated Care Services, and how it's approached as a region is super important. And I think that's definitely something um, that we've we've learned through this. I suppose finally, the, the kind of uh, big area that I've particularly found a valuable lesson is the implementation of new technologies into understanding this kind of the, the ability to be able to do reactive research in a pandemic, which is clearly challenging. But again, that's a lot of lessons that we've learned about how we respond to this, how we utilize what we can to do research when everyone is firefighting to try and get on top of the clinical role. But we've seen, I've done some, some really interesting work looking at whole genome sequencing. And we've seen this has been certainly coordinated by the COG consortium and other things about how we can utilize these new technologies in real time to understand how we can optimize outbreaks, how we can understand transmission, how we can see the impact on other germs. So there's a whole host of that, which I know there's been a lot of so it's certainly national government support to help with that. And it's really fantastic to see that translation into clinical practice, that mobilization of knowledge back to national policy and then how it feeds feeds down again. So I think that's definitely been a I mean, clearly there are challenges around doing research in a pandemic situation. And, you know, there, there are bits to pick apart about that, but it's fantastic to to, to, to see that kind of feedback. The bits that I've, I've not spoken about are the lessons on our resilient NHS staff, the bits around the way we've experienced COVID not impacting everybody equally. 
We've seen certain patient populations that have a higher mortality rate. We've seen our BAME communities with higher rates of hospitalisation and how we support those various communities. We've seen the flexibility and the, the, the yeah, agileness of testing and how we do that. And then I suppose one big thing is telehealth and how that's becoming the new normal, how we're using, particularly like this, a virtual platform when previously we, we weren't. That's all really interesting. Thanks, James. I just wanted to pick up on um, the point that you mentioned around the unintended consequences of um, potentially the excessive use of PPE. I was just interested by your mention of that. I suppose we're looking ahead um, with winter kind of approaching in the next couple of months. And there's been lots of talk in the media and in political circles of this expectation that there is a harsh NHS winter coming uh, and that people are expecting a resurgent COVID-19, that people are expecting a harsh flu season. I suppose when, from my perspective, when I hear headlines like that, um, the instinct might be to redeploy PPE wherever you can to sort of um, to mitigate those factors when they when they emerge. In terms of looking ahead to the NHS winter, in terms of how we find that balance, I suppose, um, what would be the key steps that you would outline really uh, in how we deal with the potential for, I suppose, new COVID variants, potentially um, new flu, uh, waves of the flu virus as well? What does that look like from your perspective? PPE is super important, but it provides one aspect of risk mitigation. And I think this has to be taken in the context of optimising ventilation, making sure there's enough staffing on board. So um, I suppose it's looking at it as a whole. I think we've used PPE for a long time in the NHS. We've used it prior to the pandemic and we'll continue to use it. And there's a lot of familiarity with that. I think when the pandemic came along, quite rightly, people were very anxious and wanted to make sure they were wearing the right PP to protect themselves and their patients. As I've sort of alluded to, we've had a lot of lessons learned. There's still some minutiae about how we could optimise certain aspects with PPE, but healthcare workers are very familiar with it. They know how to use it and how to use it well. I think that, as you allude to, there is anxiety about the the new way from both protecting themselves, staff protecting themselves, protecting their patients, being able to operationalise things and get people because the risk lies not just with infection, but with other things like people getting their operations. You know, that's not my area of expertise, but I think we need to recognise that. I think so when we're going forward, I think this understanding about um certainly uh, I, I mean i've alluded to ventilation that's clearly a, a passion of mine that we're, we're trying to we do a lot of mitigation in terms of ppe but actually it's getting the air flowing through the hospital getting those filtering out all of the germs that cause problems um in an ideal situation in a hospital what we would do is if we have different people with different infections we manage them in different areas so there's not spread i think it's fair to say that people are anxious that the resources aren't there to be able to put patients with different infections inside rooms and so or in self isolation so they'd have to think about cohorting people people in areas and we've seen that there's been a lot of experience when that becomes challenging how we then risk mitigate putting people who are the least likely to get infection have worse outcome in similar areas. To, so we're having to kind of risk mitigate as we go through to reduce the, the 
the risk and optimize safety when we're trying to manage patients in hospital. And I think that's a concern when you've got just one germ. But if we're looking towards uh, the winter and we're going to have to manage COVID, we're going to have flu, there's likely to be other respiratory viruses in pediatrics, there'll be RSV, these other types of viruses which cause nasty um, infections in children. So you can see how people start to get a little bit overwhelmed by what they're going to have to manage. Saying that, there's a lot of work going on to try and plan for this in advance and how we can prepare for that. We're recognising that we're making sure that people are wearing the right masks, particularly that all the kind of right equipment is aware, uh, available. I think where we are now is that when, when we started the pandemic, as I alluded to, there was anxiety about PPE and how maybe it was misused. And again, I'm using that term not as a derogatory term to my colleagues, but as a just a broad term to try and say that maybe people deviated from policy because of anxiety. So, for example, maybe wore more than one pair of gloves, maybe wore a one, maybe want more than one uh, mask to try and protect themselves and protect their patient. But there are the un unintended consequences that, as you alluded to, there's we we know that. Um, Misuse of PPE can be as or suboptimal PPE use can be associated with transmission in itself, not just of that particular of COVID, but of other organisms. And that's exacerbated when uh, healthcare areas are understaffed. So we need to keep a close eye on infections associated with lines or prosthetic material we know about. We have national um, uh, ways of monitoring our bloodstream infections that take place in hospitals. And so keeping a close eye on those and so it's all this balance and people are very aware that they're not only looking at respiratory infections, but also these other infections that happen in hospital. And so someone like me is coming along and keeping a very close eye, picking up when, when we start to see signals of change, trying to optimise and help people with that. But it's um, so I think there's a lot of people working towards that, but it doesn't take away. There is a clear on the ground anxiety of what is happening and people are starting to to make take a lot of plans, make a lot of plans on that. And I suppose just as we kind of draw to a close, really interested in the work that you're doing around what the future of IPC might look like in your particular research interest. I suppose from my perspective, there might be a danger that there's been this period of uh, accelerated learning, I suppose, during COVID around IPC. Um, but that now there might be a there's a danger that that learning and that move towards innovation in this space kind of plateaus as other areas of clinical practice look to sort of catch up, make up for lost time, tackle the elective backlog. I suppose if you were to give a message to, to parliamentarians, to policymakers in the NHS, in government, as to how to keep that momentum going. I suppose, um, and what the future of IPC might look like. I just wondered what that might be. Yeah, again, something I've been reflecting on quite a lot recently. I think, as I alluded to, there is now um, a significant engagement in infection prevention and control across the medical community. And I think now is absolutely the time, if we were going to do anything to support and engage and empower people with, IP, with IPC, um, now is the time. And we've spoken about PPE, we've spoken about vaccination, and we've spoken about uh, environmental safety. I think the ways, some key ways that we could help support this are how can we optimise our IPC teams? 
to support them. We've got, you know, this is a, uh, I think we're seeing more, I think we need more doctors to be specialised in IPC. It is a subspecialty of infection that is, um, uh, and that's something I'm particularly passionate about. I think we need to broaden our allied healthcare professionals to support IPC. We need epidemiologists there to analyze the data to be able to prevent, to predict what's going on in real time, these trends, and take advantage of the experiences of our pharmacists and our clinical scientists that have such a uh, a valuable uh, insight into these roles. I'm particularly passionate about um, developing a personalized bespoke response for patients to in, in terms of IPC. For example, using data that is out there to understand what germs individuals carry so we can give them bespoke targeted antibiotic prophylaxis, antibiotic treatment support in terms of the way they're managed in hospitals. And to do that, we need clear access to data, both within the trust and between trusts as well. We can't be working in silos anymore. I think that and then integrating that with the new technologies that we've seen, these whole genome sequencing machines to give that extra level of detail to understand how outbreaks work, how germs move around hospitals to optimise our infection prevention measures, to stop using unnecessary resources and target things so we can use that side room for somebody else that may need it. I think we have a clear, there are clear aspects that of healthcare of IPC that take place in the community and take place in a hospital. And we need to blur those boundaries. We need to stop just having vaccination taking place in our GP surgeries and bring that and support that in healthcare. We need to bring screening for germs into the community so we know what's going on ahead of the game before people um, are admitted to hospital so we don't have to react and we can be a lot more proactive toward things. And I think finally, we need to address sustainability. We know that um, this firstly takes place as part of optimising our PPUs, which is ongoing practice, but how we repurpose what is being used into, uh, into new items, because we can see just the numbers of masks, of aprons that have been worn and how we help, help support that. So those would be my key messages, I think. Dr. James, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And I, I have no doubt that this will be a topic of conversation that keeps bubbling to the surface in terms of how we look at our NHS in the coming months. So it will definitely be a topic of conversation that will follow on the podcast. Um, But we're really grateful for your time today. So thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the From the Frontlines podcast. If you have any thoughts about our conversation or would like to get involved in a future episode, please email from the frontline at healthcomsconsulting.co.uk. If you'd like to chat about our work as one of the UK's top health and social care public affairs agencies, please visit our website, healthcomsconsulting.co.uk. Thanks again for listening.